Good evening. The FBI covered up Larry Nassar's assaults against young women in his care as a doctor with the United States American Gymnastics. Some of the more than 100 victims tell Congress the horrid details of his abuse. Biden backs his generals who sidelined Trump and a vaccine victory for the state of New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Four women who as teenagers were victimized by convicted predator Larry Nasser, who was their doctor, testified today before the Senate Judiciary Committee about the horrors they endured and how the authorities did their best to cover up the truth. Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles gave forceful testimony that federal law enforcement and gymnastic officials turned a blind eye as she declared herself a survivor of sexual abuse. Nelson Mandela once said, there can be... There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. It is the power of that statement that compels and empowers me to be here in front of you today. I don't want another young gymnast, Olympic athlete, or any individual to experience the horror that I and hundreds of others have endured before, during, and continuing to this day in the week. of the Larry Nassar abuse. To be clear, sorry. Take your time. To be clear, I blame Larry Nassar and I also blame an entire system that enabled and perpetrated his abuse. USA Gymnastics and the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee knew that I was abused by their official team doctor long before I was ever made aware of their knowledge. In May of 2015, Rhonda Fayan, the former head of USA Gymnastics Women's Program, was told by my friend and teammate, Maggie Nichols, that she suspected I, too, was a victim. I didn't understand the magnitude of what all was happening until the Indianapolis Star published its article in the fall of 2016 entitled, Former USA Gymnastics Doctor Accused of Abuse. Yet while I was a member of the 2016 U.S. Olympic team, neither USAG, USOPC, nor the FBI ever contacted me or my parents. While others had been informed and investigations were ongoing, I had been left to wonder why I was not told until after the Rio Games. The four-time Olympic gold medalist and five-time world champion is widely considered to be the greatest gymnast of all time. The hearing is targeting the role of the FBI, including delays that allowed the now-imprisoned Nasser to abuse other young gymnasts and allegations of payoffs by the then-president of the USGA. At least 40 girls and women said they were molested after the FBI had been made aware of allegations against Nasser in 2015. We'll come back to this story later in the newscast. Meanwhile, in local news, New Yorkers await a court battle over COVID-19 vaccine mandates. A federal judge temporarily blocked New York State from forcing medical workers to be vaccinated after a group of health workers sued, saying their constitutional rights are violated. Linda Perry reports. Judge David Hurd in Utica, New York, issued the stay order after 17 Catholic and Baptist medical professionals, including doctors and nurses, claimed the vaccine mandate violated their rights because it disallows religious exemptions. Anti-abortion views seem to be driving their concerns because of the use of historic fetal cell lines in vaccine production. This even though religious leaders have disagreed over the issue and the Vatican issued a statement last year saying the vaccine 
vaccines are morally acceptable. The lawsuit said the plaintiffs wanted to proceed anonymously because they run the risk of being ostracized, threats of harm, immediate firing and other consequences if their names become known. The state issued the order August 28th. It required at least a first shot for health care workers at hospitals and nursing homes as well as for education workers by September 27th. Meanwhile, the judge gave New York State until September 22nd to respond to the lawsuit. Governor Kathy Hochul vows to appeal the judge's ruling. She says New Yorkers shouldn't have to worry about contracting a virus from a health professional who was supposed to be the one protecting them. She's pushing vaccination against COVID-19. Meanwhile, today she announced a series of universal mask requirements designed to protect against the virus and its variants. You have to wear masks in schools, certain healthcare settings, at correctional facilities, homeless shelters, our transportation hubs. Uh, that is not new. But we also want to make sure that we expand this. And starting today, we're going to require masks at child care and daycare centers because if you're watching the national news, the, uh, the scariest announcements coming out every single morning are the number of children now contracting COVID. And we don't have a vaccine available for 5 to 11-year-olds. I am very anxious to get this approved. And as soon as it is, we'll be working with parents and pediatricians and schools to make sure that the children are vaccinated. But we're not hearing that that will occur for a number of months yet. So we want to make sure that even people in our state congregate facilities, our mental health facilities, uh, residential substance abuse facilities are all uh, getting wearing their masks so we can protect uh, staff and, and all the individuals who would enter those facilities. And that's effective today. And the governor is asking New Yorkers to get vaccinated. She notes the spike in infections last year at this time. It began with people gathering closely together on Halloween through Thanksgiving, and numbers finally came down after the Super Bowl. So we have a vulnerable time coming forward. I'm sending out the alarm right now. New Yorkers, pay attention. If you know people who are not vaccinated, persuade them that it is not going to be fun to spend the winter on a ventilator. Uh, there's a way they can prevent it, and that means getting vaccinated now. Following the federal government's directive, Hochul says booster shots are on track to be approved by September 20th. To get ahead of this and alleviate a staffing shortage, EMTs will be fully trained to administer the shot. This is an idea that came out of our local officials. Many county executives told me that they would like to be able to have this ability for their local uh, fire departments and health agencies. And that adds over 2,000 fully trained vaccinators. And we have 50,000 now eligible for training. Training is simple. There's a, an online and in-person training. It only takes a few hours. And they have to demonstrate their competency at this as well. So anybody who's uh, giving you a jab knows what they're doing. Very important. But it's going to help alleviate a staffing situation that we're anticipating will be the case. So we want to get ahead of that, helping the local governments prepare for this as well. Last night, Hochul witnessed the reopening of Broadway. Broadway was the first to shut down and the last to reopen as far as our key uh, industries that help define our state. Everyone comes to New York City, all those 60 million tourists a year who used to come, and they all want a ticket to Broadway. So I was there on the stage of Phantom the Opera. I wanted to go there because that's where masks were first really popularized. If you remember the Phantom, uh, years before anybody else thought it was cool to rock a mask, uh, the Phantom of the Opera had a mask on. So we were there. And while the governor cannot mandate vaccines for all New Yorkers under more limited powers compared to powers from the legislature last year to deal with COVID, 
COVID. She's asking each organization, each sports organization, to institute a requirement that fans be vaccinated before they attend an event. Governor Hochul says that's how we're going to deal with this fall vulnerability, which saw a spike in COVID cases last year. The difference, she says, this year is the vaccine. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. Thanks, Linda. And the response of blue states to the pandemic, including shutdowns, masks and vaccinations, played a major role in the recall election in California, where Governor Gavin Newsom was expected to remain in office by a comfortable margin. He announced victory after the polls closed last night. Tonight, I'm humble, grateful, but resolved in the spirit of my political hero, Robert Kennedy, to make more gentle the life of this world. Thank you all very much, and thank you to 40 million Americans, 40 million Californians. Thank you for rejecting this. California Governor Gavin Newsom. During the election, Newsom's campaign wrote that the race is close enough to start thinking about what it would be like if we had a Republican governor in California. They went on to say, sorry to put that thought in your head, but it's true. The message led to appearances in support of Newsom from President Joe Biden and other high-level Democrats. According to exit polls, opposition came from voters who fear economic losses over the spread of the virus. But most Newsom supporters agreed with California's strict approach to battling the virus. His main opponent in a field of more than 40 was right-wing radio host Larry Elders, who accused Democrats of racism. My opponent, Governor Gavin Newsom. Come on. Let's let's. Let's be gracious. Let's be gracious in defeat. We may have lost the battle, but we are going to win the war. It's a Republican takeover. White supremacists. Say hello to the black face of white supremacy. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. I worked hard for that title. May God bless California. We've got a state to save. Right-wing radio host Larry Elders. Referring to Elders, Newsom said the race is a vote for a pro-Trump, anti-vax Republican governor who's going to reverse vaccine mandates on day one. And today, President Biden said he has trust in General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, after a blockbuster revelation in the soon-to-be-released new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa titled Peril that claims Milley called his counterpart in China's military to warn about Trump. President Biden. Sir, did General Milley do the right thing, sir? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, General Milley. Go. I have great confidence in General Milley. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Later in the day, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki elaborated. The president knows General Milley. He has been chairman of the Joint Chiefs for almost eight months of his presidency. They've worked side by side through a range of international events. Uh, And the president has complete confidence in his leadership, his patriotism, and his fidelity to our Constitution. I think it's important to consider some of the context, key context of this period in time, of time in history that we're discussing and is outlined or covered in portions of this book. The outgoing president of the United States during this period of time, fomented unrest, leading to an insurrection and an attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, which we've all, you all have covered extensively, of course, one of the darkest days in our nation's history. Beyond reports in this book, there's been widespread reporting and commentary from members of his own cabinet, the former president's cabinet, I should say, including high-ranking national security officials, questioning the former president's stability, his behavior, and his suitability to oversee the national security of the United States. Those are 
are important questions that need to be discussed as well. Jen Psaki, according to the book, in the final months of the Trump administration, Gerald Milley was so fearful the president's actions might spark a war with China, he moved urgently to avert armed conflict at least twice. In those calls, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff assured his Chinese counterpart, General Li Zosheng of the People's Liberation Army, that the United States would not strike. The book says the call was prompted by Milley's review of intelligence suggesting the Chinese believed the United States was preparing to attack. Today, John Kirby, the Pentagon press secretary, said the calls were routine. A part of the value of having these communications, particularly with countries like uh, Russia and China, with which we are experiencing tension, is to try to reduce the risks of miscalculation and conflict, to try to take down tensions, to uh, to make clear uh, what our national security interests are on you pick the issue. And that's that's a the, the, the communication channel between our chairman and a chief of defense is a really key vehicle for transmitting and communicating those kinds of messages. And then has Secretary Austin, based off of these the stories out of this book, has he uh, instructed General Milley to ch- change any of the ways that he's operating? Has he asked him to inform him more about some of the conversations that he's having? Has, has there been any practical change on this current Absolutely Pentagon leadership? Not. No, not in the least. Has full trust and confidence in Chairman Milley and the job that he's doing. The book reads, Lee was agitated over the events of January 6th, even after Milley told the Chinese military leader, democracy can be sloppy sometimes. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Back to the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings into the FBI's apparent stonewalling in a probe into sexual abuse charges against Michigan State and Indiana-based USA Gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser. Michaela Maroney, a member of the gold medal-winning U.S. Olympics gymnastics team in 2012, recounted to senators a night when at age 15 she found the doctor on top of her while she was naked. I was molested by the U.S. Gymnastics National Team and Olympic team doctor Larry Nassar. And in actuality, he turned out to be more of a pedophile than he was a doctor. My story is one in which special agent in charge, Jay Abbott, and his subordinates did not want you to hear. And it's time that I tell you. In the summer of 2015, like I said, I was scheduled to speak to the FBI about my abuse with Larry Nassar over the phone. I was too sick to go meet with anyone in person, and talking about this abuse would give me PTSD for days. But I chose to speak about it to try and make a difference and protect others. I remember sitting on my bedroom floor for nearly three hours as I told them what happened to me. I hadn't even told my own mother about these facts, but I thought as uncomfortable and as hard as it was to tell my story, I was going to make a difference and hopefully protecting others from the same abuse. I answered all of their questions honestly and clearly, and I disclosed all of my molestations I had endured by Nassar to them in extreme detail. They told me to start from the beginning. I told them about the sport of gymnastics, how you make the national team, and how I came to meet Larry Nassar when I was 13 at a Texas camp. I told them that the first thing Larry Nassar ever said to me was to change into shorts with no underwear because that would make it easier for him to work on me. And within minutes, he had his fingers in my vagina. The FBI then immediately asked, did he insert his fingers into your rectum? I said, no, he never did. They asked if he used gloves. I said, no, he never did. They asked if this treatment ever helped me. 
I said, no, it never did. This treatment was 100% abuse and never gave me any relief. I then told the FBI about Tokyo the day he gave me a sleeping pill for the plane ride to then work on me later that night. That evening, I was naked, completely alone, with him on top of me, molesting me for hours. I told them I thought I was going to die that night because there was no way that he would let me go. But he did. I told them I walked the halls of Tokyo Hotel at 2 a.m. at only 15 years old. I began crying at the memory over the phone, and there was just dead silence. I was so shocked at the agent's silence and disregard for my trauma. After that minute of silence, he asked, is that all? Those words in itself was one of the worst moments of this entire process for me. To have my abuse be minimized and disregarded by the people who were supposed to protect me, just to feel like my abuse was not enough. But the truth is, my abuse was enough, and they wanted to cover it up. USA Gymnastics, in, in concert with the FBI and the Olympic Committee, were working together to conceal that Larry Nassar was a predator. I told them how he molested me right before I won my team gold medal. How he gave me presents, bought me caramel macchiatos and bread when I was hungry. I even sent them screenshots of Nassar's last text to me, which was, Michaela, I love how you see the world with rose-colored glasses. I hope you continue to do so. This was very clear cookie-cutter pedophilia and abuse. And this is important because I told the FBI all of this. And they chose to falsify my report and to not only minimize my abuse, but silence me yet again. And that's Ali Raisman, who won gold medals with the 2012 and 2016 Olympic teams. Gymnast Maggie Nichols also described the FBI's apparent involvement in the case. After I reported my abuse to USA Gymnastics, my family and I were told by their former president, Steve Penny, to keep quiet and not say anything that could hurt the FBI investigation. We now know there was no real FBI investigation occurring. While my complaints uh, with the FBI, Larry Nassar continued to abuse women and girls. During this time, the FBI issued no search warrants and made no arrests. From the day I reported my molestation by Nassar, I was treated differently by USAG. Not only did the FBI fail to conduct a thorough investigation, but they also knew that USAG and the US OPC created a false narrative where Na Larry Nassar was allowed to retire with his reputation intact and returned to Michigan State University, thus allowing dozens of little girls to be molested. FBI agents did not properly document evidence, failed to report to proper authorities, and the special agent in charge was seeking to become the new director of security for the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee a job opportunity raised by Steve Penny. Afterwards, FBI agents in charge of the investigation lied to OIG investigators about what had happened. This conduct by these FBI agents, including the special agent in charge, who are held in high regard and expected to protect the public, is unacceptable, unac unacceptable disgusting, and shameful. To date, no one from the FBI the U.S. OPC or USAG has faced federal charges other than Larry Nassar. For many hundreds of survivors of Larry Nassar, this hearing is one of our last opportunities to get justice. We ask that you do what is in your power to ensure those that engaged in wrongdoing are held accountable under the law. 
gymnast Maggie Nichols. Steve Penny was head of USGA at the time of the abuse. He reportedly offered the FBI investigator a top job with USGA during the investigation. FBI Director Christopher Wray offered a rare apology from the Bureau, adding there was little he could do about FBI officials who have already retired. On behalf of the entire FBI, uh, I want to begin by saying to the brave women who testified here this morning, Ms. Biles, Ms. Maroney, Ms. Nichols, and Ms. Raisman, and I gather there were some others uh, here today who were among the many who Nasser hurt. I'm deeply and, and profoundly sorry to each and every one of you. I'm sorry for what you and your families have been through. Uh, I'm sorry that so many different people let you down over and over again. And I'm especially sorry that there were people at the FBI who had their own chance to stop this monster back in 2015 and failed. And that is inexcusable. It never should have happened. And we're doing everything in our power to make sure it never happens again. And that's the head of the FBI, Christopher Ray. And finally, closer to home, for decades, West Village activist Doris Deether has been taking on developers and politicians who've had designs on changing the iconic neighborhood. She's fighting for her life now at the age of 93. In a report and a story done a couple of years ago about her work, Deether recalled, when they started trying to take down historic buildings to put up something else, I got annoyed. Deether got her feet wet as an activist in 1959 while going up against one of the most powerful planning officials in city history, Parks Commissioner Robert Moses. Deether said, I thought he was a bully. When she wasn't taking up a cause, she was in Washington Square Park, where she was greeted by all kinds of people and animals, from pigeons to squirrels, which eat right out of her hand. While her walker had slowed her down some, Deether told the reporters that she was speaking with she has no plans to stop being involved in community issues. There's always issues, Deether said. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.